Hi, Josh. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you doing? Good, it's good. You're in good Long Island? Uh, no, I'm actually, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania now. I was in uh, so kind of a circuitous story, but as you know, we met when I was in New York. I was working in Long Island for a little while, and then I was offered uh, a job overseas, actually, to work with like an ultra-luxury resort chain to set up a wellness program, work on a wellness program for them. So I spent a couple years in Asia, and then January of last year, I came back to New York, was there for, you know, two and a half, three months, and then when everything went to lockdown, talking with my family and deciding what to do because I had just recently returned to New York. They're like, you shouldn't stay. So I had come back this way. So now I'm in Pittsburgh for the moment, for the foreseeable future, I should say. <laughs> oh, really? Why Pittsburgh? Why'd you choose there? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, my family is, I'm originally from outside of Cleveland. And earlier in my life, I'd spent a number of, number of years in Pittsburgh where I met my martial arts teacher, which kind of kicked off my whole path into the traditional medicine and everything. And I came back to work with him. Uh, we're actually writing a book right now. So it's close enough to family. I could be here with him. Standard of living is, isn't as bad as the coasts. <laughs> so I figured, you know, some positives and minuses and ultimately figured to come back here. What type of martial arts did you start in? Well, when I was a kid, I was doing karate and kickboxing. But when I came to Pittsburgh, I had gone to school and got out of school. And I was like, oh, I want to get back into martial arts. And that was when, uh, do you remember like the movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Like these really beautiful cinematic kung fu movies were like the thing. And I was like, oh, what is this Chinese martial arts all about? and happened to be very fortunate to find a teacher from Beijing and a very predominant lineage out of Beijing in Pittsburgh. And so I started training the traditional Chinese martial arts with him. You could say generally the umbrella term is like Kung Fu, but there's like subsets. So you'd say like Tai Chi, a lot of people would be familiar with. And there's like a couple other things like that that we work on. Kung Fu. I'm not familiar with Kung Fu. That's not something I've ever studied. Yeah, it's, it's definitely its own animal as far as martial arts go, traditional martial arts go. It's one of the cool things that kind of kept me interested in East Asian traditions is that they're very holistic, particularly the type of Kung Fu that my group practices is based on principles. And so not only is it just like uh, particular concepts, but, you know, like Chinese philosophy, you have things like the yin and yang changes or the five elements. And these are the same principles that create and govern the changes in the universe. And they're the same principles that you use in the Chinese martial arts to overcome your opponent, essentially. But it's also the same principles that governing the changes of the seasons and the changes within the human body. And so 
because they're universal in nature, you can go deeper and deeper into this framework. And so not only was I using the martial arts as a vehicle for just physicality, I'm not really an aggressive or a violent personality, but for me, that's how I got movement into my life. Um, and something that I was, was, I was pretty apt at, just kind of naturally. I didn't do like organized sports per se. So I wasn't getting any kind of physicality via organized sports, but through the martial arts, I was able to kind of have that part of my life. But then you have the philosophical component or the principal base. And so that really intrigued me to dive deeper and deeper and to chase these concepts. And of course, you know, being in a martial arts group, you end up punching each other in the nose or, you know, you kind of bend the arm a little bit just, you know, in practice. It's not because, you know, you're being mean to each other or whatever. And the Chinese martial arts in particular, we will use herbal medicines, liniments, um, moxibustion, massage. If you're lucky enough to have an acupuncturist in the group, they will treat you. And so you start to learn not only the combative techniques and the health preservation techniques, but also the healing methods, all a part of the same martial arts system. And so eventually, I just felt the need to like really pursue this idea, these principles, these concepts as a framework for understanding my position in the universe and my relationship with myself and my relationship with other people. And studying the medicine, you can go deeper and deeper, but then also you have the added benefit of helping others, you know, on their path or their journey and healing. And that can take, you know, many, many different forms. So from some, something as simple as like martial arts as a kid, you know, it really has transformed and changed the trajectory of my whole life. Yeah, I think Eastern traditions are so important to incorporate into one's life because not only does it give you a holistic understanding of self, it demands discipline. Mm -hmm. And there's not much in Western society that cultivates discipline in that way you know waking up at five in the morning and going to go practice for three hours with 20 other people i spent years of my life doing that and that really trained that character inside to incorporate into other areas of my life wouldn't you say oh of course yeah definitely and that's like uh that's really that's really what kept me going as opposed to pursuing any other path, whether, you know, any other career choice or whatever, was the fact that it actually, it will affect you on multiple levels at the same time. And so, like you're saying, getting up, putting in the work, not only just having that as an aspect for like motivation and determination, et cetera, but having that underlying framework that can be laid over every other kind of aspect of your life has a lot of value. And so we, you, you're right, we definitely don't have anything like that in parallel in the West. Can you explain acupuncture for people who have never tried it, who have never done it, who don't know what it is? Yeah, sure. Basically, acupuncture, it's a simple tool, right? You use a very thin piece of wire. It's different than a hypodermic needle. Like if you go get 
the vaccine or a flu shot or something, uh, those needles are much bigger and they're hollow and they actually cut through the tissue where the acupuncture needle is very thin, it's solid and actually slides in between the tissues because it's so thin. We can use the needle to access different tissues in the body. We can keep it subcutaneous. We can touch like soft tissue, like the muscle tissue or connective tissue. Uh, we can reach the bone in some areas, nervous tissue, vascular tissue. Uh, and so there's many different mechanisms that we can leverage with the needle. Something so simple as a needle can affect many different systems in the body. Depending on what walks in the door of the clinic, most of the time it's going to be pain related. In the States, that's like, like kind of we say it's our bread and butter, you know, orthopedics, or pain management. Um, but we can also affect internal medicine as well. Probably the second biggest category that we treat is women's health issues and fertility. But we can do many, many things. It could be the common cold. It could be autoimmune conditions, chronic pain conditions, etc. It's how we use this very simple tool of the needle to leverage the natural mechanisms of the body, basically to create like a homeostatic effect and kind of bring it back into normal functioning. So when you say women's health, do you mean what? You target the ovaries? Do you offer herbs and different plants to yeah. ignite more mm -hmm. blood flow? What exactly would you do? Yeah, sure. So two things. Uh, the first thing is very commonly acupuncture and herbal medicine are utilized hand in hand but they're not exactly the same. The needle is like a, it's physical in nature where you're mechanically addressing the tissues that you're trying to stimulate. There's a couple other things involved if you use like a electricity like e-stem or something or heat like moxa. The herbs is like internal medicine. You know, you take it and you take it every day for whatever the uh, prescription would last. Sometimes it's three days, sometimes it's, you know, a week or more, it depends. So the me mechanisms are going to be a little bit different. When we talk about women's health, we want to make sure everything is flowing as smoothly as possible. For instance, with the menstrual cycle, you got to make sure that you have, you know, a relatively like 28-day cycle, the flow is, you know, within, you know, like five days or so. Ideally, no pain or PMS symptoms. When we start to see irregularities in the cycle itself, the quality of the blood, or any other symptoms, there's going to be some sort of uh, like a stagnation or a blockage or a deficiency somewhere impeding the natural flow of things. Where that is, what the mechanisms are can be varied. And that's part of when you see a, a traditional medicine practitioner, you'll go through a pretty detailed initial consultation because we're trying to see, we look at your body as an ecosystem, right? And so we're trying to see where those blockages or the deficiencies are causing the disharmony, which would be the symptoms, right? So for instance, if you have painful menstruation, you you don't necessarily have to touch the ovaries with the needle or the uterus or whatever. You can touch other parts of the body to cause effect. 
there's different mechanisms there. But is it because we look at things like, are things too warm, are things too cold, are things too dry, are things too damp, things like this. Is there enough blood? Is there not enough blood? Is there, is it maybe not the substance itself, but the functioning producing the blood or producing the movement of blood? Why is there a problem? Why is there a disharmony? And depending on looking at all of the different factors, because we'll ask about other things, not just the main symptom that you would come in with, but other symptoms that may relate to the menstrual cycle or your body as a whole to find out if your ecosystem is a little too damp, a little too dry, a little too hot, a little too cold, along those lines to keep it very simplified. If you have five women in the room, and they all are coming in for painful menstruation, they can all have five different reasons for that. And so you're going to use different points on the body to leverage to put them back into balance. Or you'll use five different herbal formulas that addresses each individual ecology to help bring it back into balance and to get everything flowing properly. How many humans have you think you've seen? How many humans have I seen? Well, okay, so there's like unique patients, but then multiply that by 10 or more because you see them multiple times. So, you know, thousands, easy. And wouldn't you say that each person is extremely individual and unique and you can't use the same recipe for each one? Yes, generally speaking, yes. Every circumstance in an individual's life is going to be unique. But fortunately, the beauty of the traditional medicine framework is it gives you a, a little bit of a simplified model so that it, you have the capacity to treat. And so that's why we look at the patterns. Like, is it damp-oriented? Is it heat-oriented? And so particularly with the herbal medicine, we'll look at those patterns and a particular formula will have multiple herbs in it to address those kind of imbalances. Because fortunately, we are all human, so there's only going to be so many varieties, uh, generally speaking, you know. And then you can adjust dosage or add one or two herbs, depending on the person, to really dial it in. But yeah, every person is unique. Even something simple like elbow pain or shoulder pain. Why does the person have pain there? Is it because they fell on it? Was, was there an accident? Did they fall downstairs something? Okay, that's very clear. It was trauma. That's the mechanism, right? But sometimes there is no clear event. They just have pain or pain that develops over time. So then you have to wonder, okay, if it's lifestyle-based, perhaps from sitting at their desk, typing at the computer, now they have shoulder or elbow pain, but it's only on one side. Well, if that's the case, why isn't it on both sides? And so you have to start kind of investigating and figuring out why is there pain or blockage in that part of the body as opposed to another part of the body. So you go through this process, filtering out what are the possibilities. Also, what is the nature of the pain? 
again, it could be something where you look at like temperature. Is the pain, is the elbow swollen and red and more heat oriented? Or is it more uh, diffuse, achy, more cold oriented? And those will change your, ultimately your diagnosis and then your treatment principle. So say if it's hot in nature, maybe it's an acute pain, it's still red and swollen and painful, you don't want to apply heat or warming herbs because you'll exacerbate it. So if it's cool pain in nature, you'll want to add the warming herbs or maybe use a little bit of moxibustion to warm up the area and get the flow back to normal. You really, every single time, you have a couple ideas of why it would be, but you have to ask a bunch of questions to find out exactly. So ultimately through the, the intake or the consultation, that's what is happening. You're figuring out, you know, is it a traumatic experience? Is there some internal component? Is it environmental? And then from there, you need to find out the specifics. Okay, is it, we say like excess or deficient? Is there too much of something, not enough of something? Is it hot, is it cold? Is it damp, is it dry? And then we, from there, we'll have our diagnosis. We'll say damp heat in the elbow causing pain. Then you know how to treat it from there, right? You wanna drain the damp and reduce the, the heat in the local area so that the, the channels can course naturally. So for me in my body, when I feel pain or strain, it's always my go-to spot is my psoas. And if you remember, that's when I would go see you. It would happen when I'm stressed or if I'm exerting my body too much. That was my area where my body would just nag at me. And why I love acupuncture is because it would target and kind of click it back into place. And I do a lot to myself in terms of keeping myself in balance, whether it be food or exercise or meditation, because if I'm not in balance, I feel it immediately. My body just rages at me. So to avoid that, <laughs> I make sure I take care of myself. But why I push acupuncture is because I feel like it gets internally a depth that when I am putting myself in these situations where I'm in overexertion, it targets it on a nervous system level and on a muscular level as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So kind of what I had mentioned before is we can access many different types of tissue depending on what we're trying to do. And we can do it in various parts of the body. So we can needle locally. You know, some people, some practitioners don't try to actually directly touch the psoas just because it's deep into the body, but it's possible. You can directly touch the psoas with the needle. You can access the nerves that travel to the psoas and treat those to have effect on the psoas. You can treat the nerve as it comes out of the spine in the nerve root or in like the hand or the foot as branches of the same nerve will end in the extremities. And so that's one of the ways that a lot of people treat. Um, they only treat, we say distally. They, they don't necessarily treat the actual spot of pain 
they'll only treat from the elbow down or from the knee down because they're accessing these pathways and getting effect nonetheless. So basically, you can, with uh, muscle tissue, you can treat it directly, particularly if there's inflammation there or if there's adhesions like knots, um, some people say trigger points, whatever. You can get right into the belly of the muscle, needle that area. Very often, the muscle will twitch in response. Uh, you can get a release that way. Uh, you can get the muscle to twitch again, perhaps from uh, a little bit distally, uh, the nerve root, etc. What you're trying to do again is if there's inflammation in the area causing pain, you want to get that out. If there's something a little bit more sticky, like a knot or an adhesion, you want to work on getting that out. So everything is moving and operating more smoothly. And then kind of like what you're saying also is very important, and that's outside of the clinic, is uh, dietary advice, any exercise that you would need to do. Um, so if there's structural imbalance, someone has psoas issues or low back pain, et cetera, you would need to have some sort of strengthening protocol to work on or, or just a general fitness regimen to work on as well as uh, in Chinese medicine, we do a lot of dietary advice as well. So that will continue treatment outside of you know, the, the clinic itself. Yes, I love the twitch feeling of when the needle goes in and the muscle that was once clenched becomes released. It's immediate, the after effects. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, so it's pretty useful. And again, it's like such a simple tool, but you can get a lot of benefit, um, particularly when, if there's any like motor inhibition in the muscle, uh, very often where one muscle's tight, the, the opposite muscle's not firing as properly. You know, so like you have two sides of the joint. So the bicep will, you know, say, bring my hand closer to my shoulder, right? But the tricep will bring the hand away. So on the arm, you have both sides of the joint. Very often, if your bicep is very strong and the tricep is not strong enough or it's inhibited, you'll start to have pain. And so you can loosen by getting the twitch from one muscle, but then strengthen uh, in the other, in the opposite. So you can have a balancing effect that way as well. And again, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. You just have to know your anatomy. You have to know where you're going with the needle. And uh, it can be fun, too. A lot of people, it's an interesting experience for people, like, you know, the first time when the muscle twitches, you know. Or if you, like, not just the needles, sometimes we'll use the electricity and keep it twitching, keep it twitching or whatever. And it's, it's kind of fun. You know, your arm's kind of like moving around on its own accord or something. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about embodiment and mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. For me, with my yoga practice over the past, uh, how many years? 14 years, I guess. What I've noticed within is enhanced mind-body connection because of the clarity of communication within the nervous system of my brain to my body. And how when I first started, I even had parts of my body that weren't active. They were asleep. 
the muscles were not firing at all. My brain was not firing. These synapses were not communicating with each other. So how in Eastern medicine for you, how do you see that within your practice and with your clients? Yes, this is a, it's a, it's a big topic. One actually very interesting thing, specifically with acupuncture in regards to this, is the concept of proprioception. What is that? And, I've never heard that term. Yeah, so you know how we have um, different senses, you know, like you have your equilibrium, like balance, you have like light touch and specific touch. Proprioception is one of these senses. And it's if you were to close your eyes and you put your hand in front of your face, you know your hand is there. Or if you close your eyes and you put your hand behind your back, you know your hand is behind your back. So it's the sensation of your body in three-dimensional space. And what's interesting with the acupuncture, the needles will stimulate the proprioceptive sense in parts of the body that have never been touched before. And so the map in your brain will get higher and higher resolution of your body from the needle stimulating this proprioceptive response, the sense, I guess. And so it's pretty interesting, like people, they'll, it's one thing, one thing that's interesting. So, okay, does acupuncture hurt? Well, honestly, sometimes it can, it shouldn't, you know, um, you know, you, you pierce the skin with the needle, you'll feel a little pinprick, but what else? You feel all kinds of other things. You can feel the muscle twitch, you can feel warming, you can feel pressure, you can feel moving, uh, tingling. There's actually, a, you know, like a dozen or so sensations that we can stimulate by using the needle. You know, there's a lot of research actually isolating the specific types of neurofibers that are being stimulated with each feeling. But at least us as Western people, we don't really embody ourselves. And so it's interesting. A lot of my patients, I have to spend a lot of time with them and be patient and let them experience what's happening because any sensation, they immediately associate with pain. They feel something and they say it hurts. And so I have to give them a moment and let them experience it and say, okay, is it pain? Is it sharp pain? Is it dull pain? Do you just feel pressure? Do you feel something moving? And we have to explore it sometimes for them to realize that just because they're feeling something does not mean that it's pain. Interesting. Um, yeah. I've experienced that too. When I used to teach yoga, people would say, oh my God, that hurts. But really their body was just opening. And they were feeling that muscle for the first time. So the yeah, question yeah. I would ask was, okay, is it sharp shooting pain? Like you're going to die? Is something out of its socket? Or do you just feel your body? Yeah, exactly. And so for me, even though it's not always a comfortable experience in the beginning for the patient, for me, it's actually an exciting opportunity for them. Yes. And so I try, I, you know, I just try and just be there, kind of let, the process unfold and let them have this kind of moment of discovery and it gets pretty interesting sometimes you'll get very wild descriptions of what people are feeling 
you know, we can, we have a pretty strong handle on a lot of the things that we try to do in the body, but sometimes the, the person experience, you know, their experience is their own and they'll have something pretty amazing. Like the standard things like, oh, I feel it traveling down into my, you know, my thumb. And that's the, ch the trajectory of the channel that you needled in their shoulder. You know, something like that. Sometimes, or like you needle somewhere in the abdomen, there's this kind of special place in the traditional Chinese model we call the Dantian. The Dantian is like the center of the body, and it's energetically, it's, it's very important for functioning of the body and health. And um, it's essentially in the lower abdomen. And so sometimes you needle this area and get a strong response and people will feel it waking up essentially. And they'll describe it as, you know, like, like moving or twirling. Um, it's, it's maybe not the nicest, but some people, a lot of people, multiple people have said, it feels like a ball of snakes writhing around in their belly. Multiple people say this. And then you can have very wild things where people that I, you know, I just don't have necessarily the experience to comprehend this one, but like, where people will say, you know, like talk about things like shooting out of their fingers and toes or having out-of-body experiences are like, you know, very wild things, you know, whatever it is, it's, to me, it's deepening their experience, you know, I think that it's amazing and great. And again, just like an amazing opportunity. That's so cool. Have you seen in your time that you've been practicing Chinese medicine that it's been more and more accepted in our society and people look upon it as something that actually does work? This is also a big topic in our industry. Really, it's very geographically based. Ah. Um, so now I'm, you know, I'm working in and around Pennsylvania. It's still people are still really kind of hesitant or they think it's voodoo magic or something, but people are much more open to trying or experiencing it. And it, you know, and it's great, you know, treat a lot of people they get benefit and then they tell other people, you know, they come, they get benefit. So it's, it's, we're in a positive trajectory for sure. Mm -hmm. One thing I would recommend to people though, um, that haven't tried it yet is don't wait. Very often what happens is people will go to every specialist under the sun. Their condition is progressing worse and worse and worse, becoming more and more difficult. Then they show up at the acupuncturist doorstep expecting one treatment and they're fixed. It just doesn't work like that. I wish it was a magic bullet, but it's not. You can have very great, great effect. But if you have something very, very serious, it's going to take a little time to untie all those knots. And so my advice is to give it a shot much earlier. Not only a lot of times you can keep people from like needing surgery or like more, uh, more invasive procedures, you know. Um, but once the surgery has happened, you can't undo surgery. You can do things to help with like the scar tissue and the circulation, et cetera, et cetera. But 
it might not have been necessary. Of course, there's many, many instances where surgery is 100% the answer, but what I'm, my point is, is very often people come to acupuncture at, as the last resort and expect miracles. <laughs> it's a little unfair, you know? Yeah, yeah. And important to mention on top of that is to find the right practitioner because not everyone is at a level in which they can fully assess and understand what's happening with your body. Some people are more versed and more knowledgeable and can incorporate a plan for your healing. You know, someone who just came out of school is going to be different than someone that's been doing it for 10 years or someone who has a Kung Fu background is going to be different than someone who doesn't have a Kung Fu background. So I always tell people, it's like dating, finding a teacher, finding a practitioner. You have to try a bunch of people until you find someone that works and then you click, it's effective, it's efficient, your pain has lessened. That I think a lot of people uh, don't do from what I've seen. Is they'll sure. try one person and say, oh, this doesn't work. Yeah, or they won't complete a course of treatment. Yes. You'll, you'll have a lot of people where they come in, you do your intake, you do your diagnosis and your assessment, and you say, okay, we need five sessions. Before you see much change, it's going to take five sessions. They come two times, say it doesn't work. And well, you don't take the medicine, how's the medicine going to work? Same thing actually with herbs. You go through the whole process, you prescribe the herbs, they don't take it. You ask them how they're doing, and they're like, oh, it doesn't work but they never ate it, you never drank it, whatever. So it's like, of course it's not gonna work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but also like you're saying, kind of with any, whether it's a therapist or any other health related professional, you shouldn't just go to the guy that's closest to you because they're closest to you. You know, maybe they are the fit for you, but maybe the guy, you know, a couple blocks down is better for you or the lady or whoever. I think that's a very important concept, actually, that, you know, you work with best. You know, we don't always have that opportunity, particularly if we're like in stuck with insurance or we have to do an in-network or an out versus an out-of-network provider or whatever, whatever. But if you have a chance, definitely explore a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about when you would use cupping and electricity and heat and things like this? Sure. Yeah. Cupping. Cupping is cool. I, um, I don't, I honestly, I don't use it as much as I probably should, but cupping is interesting because, you know, with massage, for instance, it's also manual therapy, but with massage, you're like pushing and squeezing the tissue with cupping. It's negative pressure. And so you're actually separating the tissue. So you're pulling the tissue apart and giving it opportunity to clear out any, anything that's accumulated, whether it's uh, toxins, metabolic byproducts, and inflammatory materials. You can separate the tissues and kind of clear all of that stuff out. So describe how you would do that for people who are listening. Give them a visual of what that looks like. Yeah, there's a couple different methods. The method I use is called fire cupping, and you use a glass cup, and um, you use like a uh, like a cotton swab doused in alcohol, and you dip the flame in the cup, and then place the cup on the skin, 
and the flame burns through the oxygen inside the cup, which creates the vacuum. And so then the cup either rests in place on the skin and you put multiple cups in an area, or you use like one cup and some oil and you can slide the cup across an area. And if a person is relatively in good shape, not necessarily fitness-wise, but there, there isn't as much uh, garbage collected in that area, it'll just be like a little pink once you remove the cup. But if there's a lot of like dark, almost like bruising, like a blotchy bruise, it can go from red to dark red to even like purple. That's a lot of that garbage I was talking about that the body needs help clearing out. And then it depends on the severity. It can last a couple of days, the mark. But, um, but you can use it very often. You can use it in pain conditions. You could see it in performance enhancement, like back in the Olympics with Michael Phelps, the swimmer, who's kind of like the most famous case here, I guess. And of course, we get phone calls all the time then. <laughs> do you do cupping? Do you do cupping? Um, with moxibustion, uh, with uh, the cupping also, you can also get some interesting effects for like colds and acute conditions as well, et cetera. There's a couple different applications. With moxibustion is also very interesting. Typical moxa, it's either loose punk or it's wrapped into a, like a cigar shape. And that is either burned directly on the body or the pole you're holding away from the body. It's a, it's a prepared mugwort, actually. So it's like a dried mugwort. Um, and so this is kind of interesting. I, I've been trying to source the original research, but it's in Japanese, and uh, so it's a little difficult <laughs> for me not being a Japanese speaker. But why mugwort? Um, so mugwort's very nice in one sense because it smolders, very nicely. It doesn't just like burst into flames, you know, it smolders, uh, produces heat. Um, uh, you can use it a little bit also um, as a fumigant. Um, but one thing that uh, one of my teachers who had studied in Japan for a little while, I guess in the 70s in Japan, they, Japan uses a lot of moxa. You can like, you just go to a moxa specialist. Um, they won't do the herbs or the needles, anything, they'll just do moxa. One thing that they found is that the mugwort, as it smolders, it emits infrared radiation. And it's an infrared radiation at a kind of like the peak metabolic rate for the, the cells, the local cells. And so it brings the local metabolism up to its healthiest peak as it's emitting the radiation, which is kind of interesting. Whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know you wonder like thousands and thousands of years why are they just burning mugwort you can burn any stick or twig or leaf or whatever but they found benefit particularly with the mugwort sometimes they'll add a couple other herbs for particular effect but generally speaking it's mug which is interesting uh, and you mm -hmm. can also take mugwort internally as a tea it's also commonly used in uh, women's health. So you use it for local heat and uh, it reduces inflammation, uh, improves the circulation in the area, things like that too. Electricity is, I use electricity pretty much on everybody these days. Moxa, not as much because it's a little tricky with 
like local regulations, building regulations for smoke and stuff. Some places you can, some you can't. Or even like, for instance, in one of the places I'm working now, I'm using multiple rooms, but one room has a smoke detector right above the treatment bed. So I'm not gonna be doing mocks in that room. But anyway, the uh, uh, electricity is very cool. It can be very simple where you're just using it to get that the fasciculation, the muscle twitch that we were talking about before. So you get the muscle, you know, like uh, flexing over and over. But there's a lot of interesting applications where we can dial in the, the frequency to get specific like neuropeptides and hormone uh, response out of the body. And so you can use the electricity for internal medicine as well, uh, which is pretty cool. Generally speaking, with the electricity, again, it's not about the intensity. So we're not going to have you like flopping around on the table like a fish too much. You know, there'll be a little bit of twitching if we're doing the muscular work, um, but much less intensity if we're doing the internal medicine, which is exciting. Yeah, I kind of use that every day too. Do you do it on yourself? I do, yeah. Yeah, not as much. I have a teacher and he yells at me. He's like, he's like, I should be needling myself every day. And of course I don't, but uh, pretty regularly, pretty regularly. I use the needles and the electricity. Sometimes I'll do moxa. It's much harder to do cupping on yourself, usually. Most often it's on the back anyway. My uh, uncle, before he passed, he had pancreatic cancer and he would cup himself. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, the doctor sent him home and said he only had 10 more days to live and he lived two more years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> he was an amazing case because his mind was sharp throughout the whole time and never faded. He was there, he was present, but it was just his body that was fading. Wow, that's so interesting. Did he, was it something like that he grew up with or he found out about later? What, pancreatic cancer? No, 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 the cupping, the cupping. Oh, oh, he's in it. Wellness, wholeness, he's very in tune with yeah. all of it. Yeah, he was a very healthy man. That's awesome. Yeah, one thing I found particularly living in Asia for a couple of years is a lot of these things are much more common, you know, where, you know, even if they were, would go to get acupuncture, they... You know, they know what it is. They know that they're going to be feeling things, you know, and they're not, it's like a, you know, just like a everyday kind of thing. Like, okay, this is what's happening now. Where because in the West, we haven't been exposed to these things for so long, or we didn't grow up with them. It's like a much more kind of like a special occurrence or, you know, particular thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a map for the body, yet we treat it as if it's this foreign entity. Yeah, yeah. I really wish that I had grown up with it, particularly with the herbal medicine, because again, it's you're eating like seasonally, you're adding different herbs and ingredients into your food or different qualities of the food. Like again, whether you need it to be warming or healing or uh, reducing the dampness in your body, et cetera, et cetera. And you follow that with the seasons, uh, your geographic location can change what you're having. And there's so much, there's just so much knowledge there that you don't have access to these days. You know, not just the ingredient itself, but how you prepare it, 
and how that changes its nature, what you use it with, like other ingredients and stuff. I don't know. Just to me, like it's such a like a, an amazing. It's almost like a kind of romantic thought to me, like having that growing up in a world like that where you're that that in tune with like the natural environment around you. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt when I went to India with Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. I love Ayurveda. I'm a big fan because it gave me an understanding of how my body worked. They diagnosed me with Crohn's disease a long time ago. I don't have Crohn's disease. I just needed to avoid eating certain foods because that caused inflammation in my small intestine and I couldn't process it. Now I'm fine. I eliminated the heat. Yeah. But... Yeah. In India, you know, they are raised with this in their household, in their daily life. So me too, I have an admiration and a slight jealousy of, oh, I wish I had that when I was five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I yeah. once a long time ago, I was dating a guy and we broke up because he didn't believe that ginger could heal your body, that ginger could heal your digestive issues. And yeah. I said, okay, we have fundamental differences. This is not going to work. Wow. We got in a huge fight yeah. <laughs> on the sidewalk <laughs> about <Well>. it. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was for the good and that the ginger not only healed your belly, but healed a bad relationship i don't know <laughs> well duh <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's also a good point like um you have to be careful sometimes because the ginger is very warming in nature and so if you're if you have too much fire adding the ginger it might be like a contraindication so it's 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 like really tricky. Like a couple of my buddies and I who do herbs, you know, we're always kind of like tossing around ideas. Like, should we make some sort of product? You know, should we make a drink or should we make some like pills or, you know, like and market it or whatever? And how you just really are stripping so much benefit of the medicine out if you do it that way. Number one, you never know how people are going to take it. You know, like the people that usually the people that are taking the warming, exciting, like stimulating things are the people that really shouldn't be, you know, because they're already burning, you know, kind of the candle at both ends already. And you'd have no say over that, really, if it's a product. Um, there's no I think kind it's of like, a good entry point. What do you mean? If you put a product out, I think it would be a good entry point for people. Yeah, so I mean, these are this is all part of the conversation we have. Like, if if that's the case, then it would have to be maybe something that's very mild in nature, that doesn't, you know, if if you're in balance, right, you have like much less symptomatology. But if you're canted one way or the other, you're too warm or you're too cold, then you start to see the symptomatology arising. But if you keep taking things that are cooling you, cooling you, cooling you, you're just going to keep going in that trajectory. But then if you take things that are warming and warming and warming, eventually you'll get back to normal. But then maybe you'll be too warm, too warm, too warm. You know, so 
if we were to put things out, like, would there have to be milder things so that people can't abuse it as easily? And if that's the case, is there not going to be enough benefit? Like, people aren't going to feel the change. Here's my opposition to that. But what if you created something that wasn't so mild, that did have an effect on people noticeably, and they had the intuitive insight to understand within themselves when is too much and when is too little. For example, when I didn't know anything about my body and I just drank coffee, drank coffee, drank coffee, I would develop these heat rashes and almost like psoriasis on my skin. So I finally realized, okay, this is too much. Let me back off. Let me drink celery juice because that's cooling for the liver and it'll detoxify me. So I bumped one extreme and then went to the other extreme that I was opposing. And now I can do both. I can drink celery juice and drink coffee, not drink so much coffee and find the balance. So I don't think you should cut yourself short in bringing sure, sure. a mild yeah. product in. Bring in something yeah. that's effective and people will figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's fair, for sure. I guess I got to just have more faith in people, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Well, there's, there actually, there are already a couple companies. I'm, I don't pay enough attention to know how well they're doing, but there, I do know there's one or two that they're putting out products like that based off of TCM that you take as like a, like a, a powder in your drink or something, you know, whatever. I guess I just has, haven't been serious enough to really try to, to put something out there. Yeah. If you do. Yeah. Don't settle for making it mild. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I love Trifala. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. So Trifala is an interesting berry blend that they use in Ayurveda. And mm. in India, it's so wildly revered that there's this phrase and they say, oh, you don't have a mother? Don't worry. Here's Trifala. Because that's how effective it is for the body. Nice. It's saying like, don't worry if you don't have a mom. Here's some Trifala. Yeah, yeah. but it's for digestion yeah yeah interesting Hmm. do you take supplements on the daily i do yeah what do you Mm -hmm. take generally speaking i don't do i don't take many herbal formulas daily if if i'm starting to notice something like if i'm having a cold come on or if, um, particularly with me, I also have like digestive things that I, I focus on. If I'm doing all right, I don't take the herbs. But if I start to really start to see some kind of symptomatology, then I'll, I'll take herbs. Generally, though, supplement-wise, probably right now the only thing I'm taking every single day is digestive enzymes and uh, probiotics, basically. I'll cycle through various other ones. I actually, I'll experiment on myself with things because a lot of a lot of my patients will ask me and stuff. And so, if it's something I hear a lot of people talking about, sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll take it myself and see if there's any benefit that I notice or whatever. Just like kind of common things or like things like um, 
like adaptogens or something for when I'm training. But yeah, so I'll do like a cycle on and off, like things like multivitamins. I don't take it 365, but I'll take them for a couple of weeks and then I'll cycle off and then I'll come back. I'll do them probably every month. If you catch me, I'll have some other kind of formulation going just to see. <laughs> but pretty much the only thing I take every day are in the morning, I take enzymes on an empty stomach and then I take digestive enzymes with each meal and uh, probiotic. I take vitamin C, vitamin D, iron, protein, omega. Did I say B? I take B and Trifala. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Check out Trifala. I will, sure. If you have digestive things yeah, happening. Yeah. <laughs> I really like this brand called Banyan Botanicals. Banyan, okay. Yeah, they also make this awesome Nasia oil. Are you familiar with that? Mm -mm. I, I actually, I don't really know much Ayurveda myself. Oh, okay. So Nasia oil, the base is sesame and they, I think they had five or six other oils in it too, but it generates heat and warmth. Mm. So I always put it on my third eye and behind my ears when I go to sleep. And when I'm on a plane, I put it underneath my nostrils just to block the passageway a bit. So mm -hmm. I don't inhale everyone else's germs. Yeah, sure. And it seems to work. Nice. Do you do like other like essential oils or anything like that? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Grapefruit is very uplifting for me and always puts me in a good mood. Neroli, geranium, I always rotate those. Tea tree for if I get a pimple on my face or if I get a cut to clean any oh, sure. uh, infection, I'll use that. I use, oh, I do neem a lot too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing antibacterial but also good for rashes and any skin issues lemon i put underneath my armpits sometimes if they smell and i'm on a i'm in a rush throughout the day driving wherever <laughs> i have it in my car as an emergency <laughs> yeah love essential oils yeah definitely there's a lot of benefit for sure in France, it's incorporated into their insurance. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah, in uh, yeah, Europe, the traditional medicine's inter interesting. Like in Germany, there's uh, some practitioners that they only treat via the ear because the ear is like a microcosm of the body. Yeah. Right? And they use like um, these particular this particular machine that can diagnose and treat according to the, the pathology found in the ear points. And they only treat the ear. They don't needle the rest of the body. And it's 100% covered. So it's interesting. Right now, actually in the US, we're a little bit behind technology-wise. For instance, we can't that machine is not FDA approved, so we can't use it here. And even like a lot of the Easton machines that we use can really be upgraded quite a bit. There's a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of red tape you gotta go around. You have to spend time and money to make all those changes happen. And so I guess uh, it would just have to be whatever company that decides to do it, you know, put forth all that effort.
Yeah, I don't think anyone in the U.S. in terms of FDA or the government even wants that to happen because pharmaceuticals are their number one resource of money. That's how they make their money. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely, there's definitely a, a, a problem as far as that goes, for sure. With insurance companies paying for traditional medicine, it seems like for every step forward, we take two steps back. You know, I don't even work with insurance anymore, personally. I mean, I kind of don't want to be too accusatory or whatever, but it's definitely, <laughs> it definitely, they don't make it easy for us, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can count on two hands and two feet the number of times someone has just thrown pills at me or antibiotics, mm-hmm. or a cream, Yeah. when I didn't even need it. <laughs> Maybe sometimes I needed it, for sure, to kill a virus, but it's just, uh, I, I wish in this country we were more holistic about yeah. lifestyle and longevity. Yeah, they're definitely, like PCPs and other practitioners are definitely incentivized to prescribe, that's for sure. And, you know, the lobby groups are very powerful. So one of the things, you know, acupuncture and traditional medicine people really need to get together, you know, join their state groups, you know, uh, the national groups, societies, whatever. And we need, there's actually some like infighting a little bit about which way things should go or how things should be done. And it's happening. There's more and more organization happening, but there shouldn't be an acupuncturist that isn't part of their state board or their state uh, organization. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are you familiar with maps? Is that the, uh, is that the, uh, uh, like the psychedelic research? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they are now in partnership with UCLA and they've started a research group of mindfulness and meditation and introducing these psychedelic practices to heal the mind. Mm -hmm. And in LA, a bunch of ketamine clinics have popped up as well. Mm. And it it goes back to what you're saying, it's very geographical Mm -hmm. of who and what community accepts these things. But that is a huge leap from where we were even five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I have hope. Yeah, there's a, that's actually, there's a lot of very exciting research coming out of there. Um, and I think we'll have more and more opportunity in the future, for sure. It wouldn't necessarily be, like, I wouldn't be able to prescribe psychedelics or whatever, but I definitely would support the research and usage of it, without a doubt. I think there's tons of potential for benefit. And, you know, it just then it goes back again to having like plant medicines. And also the idea, it's the con- almost like kind of like the idea of dosage or intensity with medicine where there's like daily medicines that are like your foods, the herbs that you add in your foods. And those are things, they're, they're mild, you can eat it any day, basically depending on the season or whatever, right? Um, but if you start to, you know, have some disharmony, you'll need something a little bit stronger than your daily 
foodstuffs. And so you start getting into a little bit stronger herbs. You might, you know, maybe even like something over the counter. In Asia, there's a lot of patent medicines, you know, for colds or for stomach problems or whatever. But then you'll have, you know, eventually some people will have more of a disharmony, a more serious illness, and you'll need a more specific, more powerful herbal formula, perhaps, to again put yourself back into the balance uh, so your body can maintain homeostasis, right? And, you know, the psychedelics would definitely be somewhere high up on that ladder. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, you're eating it with grandma and grandpa and the kids around the dinner table, that wouldn't be its purpose, but it does have purpose and it does have value on the spectrum of, you know, nature-based, you could say medicines, but it's, it's more like interfacing. Like, how are you interfacing with nature, with your daily habits, with your foods? How are you interfacing with yourself and nature when you become sick, right? With traditional Chinese medicine herbs, or if it's a different kind of illness or different type of relationship, you go more for something that's like the psychedelic plant medicines. You know, they all have, there's a purpose for them, you know, and what is the, what is the benefit that you get from the experience of partaking, you know, or is it or like uh, how much leverage do you need in an experience to affect change? Sometimes it's a very little bit of leverage you need to affect change. Sometimes it's got to be blown out of your mind, <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's, I, I hope that more people will have the opportunity to to experience it and have the benefit for sure in the future. Just to dumb it down even of why someone would want to try these different things, basically to be free from pain. And when you're free from pain, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional, you're happy. You're happy to be alive. You're more useful to people. You want, you want to help your community and be an active participant. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to anyone who's listening, there are so many avenues to assist in this process of becoming pain-free. Mm. Yeah. There's actually a saying in Chinese medicine. It's basically if, this is like a paraphrase, if things are flowing freely, there's no pain. If things are not flowing, then there's pain. That could be something physically not flowing, or it can be something mentally not flowing, or something spiritually not flowing. If it's not flowing, then there's going to be pain or suffering or discomfort, right? And again, you can, you know, there's like a nesting effect where if you work with talking again, we kind of only briefly mentioned like mindfulness and breath work or, or more body oriented things like movement or uh, whatever. You can definitely find some way to access what areas are stuck and provide an opportunity to allow them to flow freely again. 
for sure. Yeah, and that doesn't have to be even the things we just mentioned. It can be something so simple as going on a walk or doing something nice for someone that's unwarranted. That can burst a blockage in the mind. Sure. You know, it, it can be anything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Very true. Yeah, it really, I guess it really just depends on what, what is required. It can be, it can literally be anything. And most, a lot of it is, is kind of, uh, can be kind of related to like compassion and kindness, really. Whether it's, if you're, whatever relationship might be out of whack, whether it's your relationship with the universe or your relationship with yourself or a loved one or another person or a relationship that's out of whack within yourself, having a little bit of just compassion and capacity to let things open up a little bit is enough to have the breakthrough, you know? Yeah. What is something for you that is either a common theme that resurfaces that you touch another deeper layer upon with time or something that has been a huge, massive uh, understanding about life or something that you've had to get through? Me personally? Yeah. Mm. I definitely am very abstract and like a top-down thinker. And uh, one of the reasons why it's very good for me to have some kind of physical practice, like martial arts or, or yoga or something, is because it, it kind of gives me a little bit of an anchor and reminds me to participate in experience and not just observe experience. Because it's, re it's really easy for me to forget that, that I have to participate. You know, like that it's, that I'm actually really here, you know. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, I've been studying um, under a bon teacher. You know, we do a bunch of different practices or whatever, and everybody, one of the cool things actually that I appreciate about the bon teachings is they're open to all of it. Like whatever you practice and you have some experience and you tell your teacher, they accept it at, at face value. Whatever it is, whatever your experience was, yes, okay, this is what you did. This is what you went through. We get it. Cool. It's not necessarily like whatever experience you had was incorrect or wrong or not the right path or like whatever. They're like, okay, you've been doing, reciting this mantra or been doing this like practice and this is what happened. Okay, great. Not only does it benefit you, but you reporting to me as your teacher, you know, benefits me because now I have more insight into what's happening, not just within myself, but with everything. And uh, one, one feeling that I, t I have gotten from doing these practices is like, I wouldn't, I'm not going to ever claim that like I'm enlightened or whatever, but a lot of times people, you know, they're like, okay, 
there's a lot of expectation on this concept of enlightenment, right? Where you achieve it and it's permanent, it's a state, you know, you're an enlightened being and therefore you're impeccable from here on out, which is simply <laughs> right? But regardless, what to me, what what it really means is you have some level of touching like the deepest layers of existence. And then when you come back to normal life, somehow you share that with everyone else. And together we have benefit. We're, we have a deeper understanding together of what this is, what is happening here? Like, what is this happening? Right? And this idea of like touching it and bringing it back and like touching it and bringing it back to me is much more important than, you know, you're up in the mountains for 40 years and you have like, you know, you disappear into some rainbow body or something, whatever you fly off. If you're a Taoist, you fly off on the back of a dragon or something, you know, whatever it is to me is much less important is actually this process of familiarizing ourselves collectively as the individual of experience like to me that's like what's happening and so just like you were saying like it can just be you know helping someone randomly or just like a simple like acknowledgement is a step in a more kind of unified experience right and we can do that with ourselves we can do that with each other we can do that with how we interface broadly as well that's a really beautiful way to put it thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know it's like um that's actually really what got me interested in continuing and going deeper with the thread of the chinese medicine is that framework like of the yin and yang and the elements and these things is it's so very useful as a map or like an operating manual you know like i mentioned it's like it can be applied on the creation of the universe and all of the mechanisms that are continuing the universe unfolding you know like that's kind of always what drove me is like just trying to what is this what has happened you know and the the tcm framework is a very elegant way to explore that and again with doing acupuncture and herbal medicine you have the added benefit of you're helping people too you know that's what kind of made me decide to pursue it as a career instead of just like a hobby because you can study all this stuff on your own and not treat a single person it's just academic then there's no real change necessarily you know right. or there's just not as much change as when you're change, helping other people along their path and their experience like in making that more rich for them is it's actually benefits everybody the more one person is whole, everybody is more whole. Yes. You know? Yes. Because it's a ricochet effect. Yeah. Like Every, yes. I mean, for anyone who does not see that, it is just so obvious. 
you, you pay it forward. I, I even see it in the conversations that I have. You see a light go off. If their light is on, everyone they encounter throughout the day, whether it be the person at the checkout stand or their mother or someone at the park, they will yeah. in turn light them up. Yeah. Yeah, my big thing has been forgiveness. That is the theme of the past few months, actually. I feel like in each stage or season of my life, there's a theme. Sure, and right yeah. right yeah. now, I am in forgiveness. And that has released so much space inside of me. Awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can I share something? It's a little bit vulgar. Is that okay? Sure. Uh, when I was younger, like in my early 20s, I get really frustrated with things, with life, people, and uh, it's such a, a silly thing, but I share it with people and they tend to like it. So what I, I created a little exercise for myself and, you know, like you get frustrated, you get aggravated and you just think like, oh, fuck, right? And so I took that and I reframed it as forgiveness, understanding, compassion, and kindness. And so every time I would get frustrated with something and I would be like, ah, fuck, or fuck it, or like whatever, it gave me like a, a little point of leverage where I re remembered, okay, and F for forgiveness, U for understanding, C, compassion, K, oh. kindness, and it was like a pattern interrupt. Oh. Right. Pattern interruption. I love that. <laughs> you created a new pathway in your brain. Yeah. And so like I would just every time I would get to that point, I would I would like remember it and I'll be like, okay. And then uh, obviously it's like the decision of responding instead of reacting. But at the time I wasn't thinking that. I was just like trying to find a solution. You know what I mean? I was tired of being frustrated. You know? That's cool. It's important though to feel the frustration and not push it down. But I love oh, the way sure. that you took self-control and said, okay, this is enough. I felt enough of this. <laughs> Let me feel something else now and not right. wallow in it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah, I do that with myself. When I get angry, I'll exercise mm. the shit out of myself, do such yeah. a hard workout and then it's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That angst, well, like, that energy. Yeah, it's like potential energy. And it depends on the intensity of the struggle. Sometimes you just need to take a walk. Yeah. Sometimes you need to bang it out in the gym. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely, I can relate to that for sure. Yeah, self-control and how to direct the energy is key. Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately... Like, uh, especially these days, I, I really just do not participate in social media because people just, they have forgotten how to be kind to each other. It's yeah. like, it's so crazy. And, you know, I don't have an answer on how to use the social media. To, like, like, if somebody is kind of going along that way, you know, Kind of like attacking or being snarky for snarky's sake or like whatever it's like i don't know how to use social media to address it because it's like they'll just come back with like the next level of retort 
you know? Like, how do you actually, I don't know. I don't know how to get traction there. So I don't, because <laughs> I don't want to throw gasoline on the fire. But but to me, it's just like, just just be kind to each other. Yeah. There is a definite lack of class and humility and humanity in our culture and society today. When people were more face to face, there innately is a sense of compassion and understanding for one another. But I think when it's we start to hide behind screens there's mm. this false sense of there's no danger like, there's no danger and it's almost like i'll behave better when people are around me i'll be my best self and when no one is around me and i'm hiding behind the screen and no one knows yeah. who i am i'm just going to be an asshole yeah well because there's the lack of consequence really yeah it's scary I, i'm very nervous for the future of this younger generation who uses technology as their means of human interaction and that's all they know yeah because there's lack of empathy there's lack of compassion there's lack of understanding there's lack of what it really means to be a human and work shit out and communicate yeah i mean my friends are doing a great job with their kids but all of them refuse to give them screen time for that very reason so I, I think there has to be this uh balance yeah sure of, te of technology into their lives yeah i mean i'm not i'm not a parent so i can't, i don't really feel comfortable commenting in that arena like but i definitely think that parental responsibility for educate like turning their children into a human being is very important you know but i'm sure it's not it's easier said than done i guess yeah <laughs> i'm sure i would be tempted to give my kid an ipad if they were throwing a fit and wouldn't shut up for two hours <laughs> back in the day it used to be like give them a little beer in their bottle or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, compassion. It all comes down to compassion. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't know. Well, I, I, there's so much to talk about. Like, we could talk about, like, you don't really have, there's not as much adversity in modern life necessarily. If you were like a hunter gatherer, you know, every single day you were trying to survive, you know. And don't get me wrong, there's people on this planet this day that are living that life. I understand, I understand. In fact, we're at, the thing that's crazy about right now is that the human race is at all levels at the same time right now. So have you ever heard of uh, spiral dynamics or integral theory? No, what is that? So like uh, integral theory is a little too complex but for now but the spiral dynamics is uh, it's like a it's just a theory of human development basically and 
it was a couple interesting things. One is that people individually will develop through tiers um, that transcend and include the previous layers. Also, those same layers play out culturally. So ah. not just from the individual, but also culturally. Yes. And the focus alternates between the self and other. So like the very first layer, I'm not an expert in this, like I'm not a scholar in this, so if I mess it up, I'm sorry. But the very first layer is like sur pure survival, food, shelter, right? Once you have mastered that, then you can start to help another person survive. So it's self and then like mm. tribe, basically. Then the tribe gets big enough, they establish a leader. So it's like another individual orientation, right? And then from leader, you have committee, right? And so there's kind of this oscillation between self and other, self and other. And, it, and at each level, your needs are different. Because your needs are different, your focus, your ethics, your morality is different. And your language is different. How you process language is different. So, for instance, the people that are developing this model, they worked with the UN to help with conflict resolution and end apartheid in South Africa because the different tiers were talking past each other. They don't, you know, they found ways that the different levels of people, and it's not hierarchical, hierarchical and like a good or bad necessarily, because um, there's positives and negatives to each level, right? But because each level has different points of focus and necessity, you will literally talk past each other. And so they were intermediaries to help the communication, bridge the communication. And now in modern times, you know, there's like a certain level of development that individuals have come to, certain level of development that culture is ultimately developed to, but all of those other levels are still occurring. Each person will travel through those, each culture will travel through those, and everybody and every community interdispersed will be at different levels at any time. This is a whole long <laughs> kind of sidetrack, but it's interesting to see how this is playing out then, you know, with, you know, in politics and international relations, like all kinds of things, how technology has affected different cultures, where people that haven't developed to the point of creating the technology are handed the technology. Or maybe our children are handed the technology before they've developed the capacity to manage the technology, the experience of the technology, right? But basically what I was originally gonna come, come to is talking about adversity is one of the things is we don't, at least in our culture, we don't exactly have a rite of passage anymore. You know, back generations ago, in like different tiers, they had very clear, in multiple cultures, it was very clear delineation of these are the characteristics and qualities you have to display 
to be considered an adult and participate in the adult activities of our culture and our society. And a lot of times there was a very severe test of that. And it's like we don't really have necessarily everything is has been it's like so homogenized at this point that there's we don't have like clear delineations of who should be responsible for what like what is responsibility what is being an adult you know very um, true but then you can see that play out on the different levels and like how that happens like with you know the corporatocracy for instance how the you know if they aren't being held accountable, what does that look like for us as an individual, as a society? You know, if like each kind of tier, like if we're not maintaining our responsibility to ourselves and others, you know, how is this looking? How is this manifesting? And we can see a lot of, a lot of this stuff is coming out, you know, these days. <laughs> mm -hmm. And one, you know, I guess one reason that it's, it's so obvious now or even accelerated is because of the connectivity of the internet. You know, because I was living in, okay, I was living in Asia for a couple of years. I was living in the jungle of Vietnam. I was fortunate, I mean, I lived on a resort. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't living in a shack. But there are still people, you know, in Vietnam living in the jungle in like, like a, a shack, basically. You know, like a, sheet metal roof and like tree structures, whatever, little com concrete buildings if they had a little extra money, but very little development. And what was interesting is they all have smartphones and are all on Facebook. So everybody is connected now. Everybody's connected. And so no matter where you are on that uh, spectrum of development, you're interfacing with each other and we're talking past each other and we're not holding each other responsible necessarily for the things we should be responsible for. And we've never had, we've never experienced this as a culture, this first time. And so to me, it's like, to try to keep a positive view of it, I think we're experiencing growing pains. Mm. I think it's growing pains. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we can move past it. And you, you know, it's, it's not, again, it's not absolute like enlightenment. Sometimes, like sometimes you will develop into like the, they use colors in the model. So like you'll go from whatever, it's like from red to blue. But depending on life circumstances, you might slide back to red. You know, so it's it's constantly it's a living process. Breathing, yes. Yeah, it's not like you're here and you're good. You're here and you're good. It's always always changing. Yeah. Ideally, it's improving, but not always. Yeah, that's the thing with enlightenment, where I can see how some people might have the blinders on and think that it's this level of attainment where you achieve it, you realize it, and you're there forever. No, that's not how it works. 
Because yeah. you can, as soon as you think you are that, you'll fall off really quick <laughs> <laughs> and come back down to your knees sure. to realize what it actually is. And it's and a constant practice and a constant choice. Yeah. And it's not just one line of development. And so this is why you always see like the guru who was sleeping with the student or like whatever. There's like waking up, you become enlightened, but you didn't grow up at the same time, right? This is more from the integral theory side, but like you'll have the different lines of development. Right. And so maybe you haven't matured socially, but you've matured with the spiritual component. Right. That's very true. I experienced that in my early 20s because I did have these extreme profound moments of awakening, of realization, but I was still in my 20s. Sure, yeah. So it was this uh, juxtaposition of, wait, hold on, I experienced this, I saw this, how do I maneuver? Yeah. So yeah. I like that, I like in integral theory, that's what it's named? Yeah, it's, uh, integral theory was basically created by a man named Ken Wilbur. Um, but there's a bunch of people at this point there's a bunch of people involved um and separately but was kind of taken into integral theory is the spiral dynamics uh spiral dynamics was pretty much put together between a man named claire graves and don beck if i'm not mistaken but those again those are like uh he's very useful as models yeah just like tcm is a model it's a framework right uh, just like the old traditions of like the tibetan buddhists or the taoist priests they had models that frameworks that help them travel through these layers of experience and for me one of the things that is exciting to kind of go back to the idea of maps is now people will have a framework to utilize with the psychedelic experience where what i saw a lot before is people are thrown into a place where they don't have a framework and when they come back sometimes they can't they can't like uh, parse things together with normal experience and so having a framework hand in hand with the psychedelic experience, I think is quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You need to give people language to define their experience. Otherwise they're going to be lost. Yeah. If there's, if there's no tangible understanding. I like the theories that you just mentioned because it's not just X and Y in terms of the axis it's X, Y, and Z and zero and 180 but also 360 <laughs> yeah 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 i wasn't excited about them for a long time and i don't i spent cumulatively a lot of time thinking about them and kind of using them but i'll you know i'll go through maybe like a month where i'm just digesting and consuming things about like integral theory or spiral dynamics and then you know, I put it aside and live life and do my other things and study other things. And 
it starts to become incorporated into me by the practice of living life and then looking at it, you know, like, and so over the years, it's actually provided a lot of value. It's been basically, I guess, my point. They're maps. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, it's not as easy to get lost if you have a map. Yeah. It's not impossible. <laughs> but it, yeah, your, your chances, your odds are better, you know. Yeah, the blueprint of understanding. And they're all basically saying the same thing, if it's a universal truth, because that is just the same concept and language is trying to define this human experience yeah exactly so whatever resonates with you really is keep seeking and finding something that works which goes back to what we were talking about before and dating your practitioners or your teachers or your partners right yeah the whole idea then ultimately is to have just like a a more and more high resolution experience. Yes. You know, and you'll have, you will have less confusion. You will have more confidence. You not only will you move through the world uh, better, but you can help other people move through the world better. And what are we if we're not all the other people too? What are we if we're not the wind blowing in the trees and the trees themselves? We're we're all interconnected, right? Yes, and to break that down into very layman's terms, that would be something such as, let's say someone entered the world with trauma and they never fully processed it and it's still part of who they are. It's still a part of the story that they tell. So they are going to relive this trauma or they're going to numb parts of themselves out so they don't have to remember the trauma, process the trauma, deal with the trauma. And so there is, let's say, one eighth of their being that's just blacked out. Mm. So now when they show up into the world, they're showing up with one eighth blacked out. When Mm. who knows what that one eighth could hold? It could be the key to opening into that higher resolution. Sure. Yeah. And not only that, but everything else, you know, like they, maybe they won't necessarily have the capacity to take that trip or the something that would help them grow, you know, or like, you know, whatever, talk to that person that would ultimately crack them open a little bit. It can be not just a lock within themselves, but with the rest of their experience, you know? And so that's why it's almost like people that have already gone through some, maybe those tears or through their own degrees of healing, they need to reach back with their hand and help the other people redraw their map. Yeah, there is that responsibility. Yeah. It doesn't, that doesn't take away the responsibility of the individual by any means, but it doesn't, you know, you're not an island in and of your, into yourself, you know, and of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is that internal voice that will say, hey, go back. 
It's not just sure. about you. <laughs> oh, sure. yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, and again, it's like if, have you ever seen like the National Geographic shows where the, or like a Discovery Channel show where they're in the African savanna and they're at the watering hole and you've got lions and hippos and birds and crocodiles all at the same hole, chilling out, drinking the water, not eating each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because at that moment, their needs have been met. But as soon as one of them needs to eat, they'll eat the other one. Uh-huh. Because their needs have changed. Uh-huh. You'll see the same thing. Like there's a, I don't remember exactly what it is, but there's like some tree in Africa that the fruit um, becomes ripe and ferments and all of the animals, they eat it together and they get drunk off of the fruit, right? And they have like a party basically and they're not killing each other. But the next day when someone needs to eat, they're gonna eat the zebra. So I think I've, I, for me, the illustration of this is, as long as we can maintain our needs, then we have the capacity to take the next step. Right? We don't necessarily have to eat each other. If we can sustain ourselves, we can help each other. Yeah, I guess the only way to get beyond to that point is living beyond survival. And a lot of people, don't get beyond survival. So then there's that sense of needing to have compassion for those that are. Yeah, and it can be the thing with the human body, like to kind of get back to medicine a little bit, is the body doesn't know as far as stress goes. It doesn't know if you're being chased by a lion. It doesn't know if you've got three deadlines coming up. It doesn't know if you're in a fight with your significant other it doesn't know if you have bills due they're all lions it's all lions and so the the stressors for your survival may be real at a survival level but they might not be real at a survival level but your body will treat them the same just because that's we haven't developed beyond that our nervous system and so a lot of things that trip us up, you know, we're whatever, we're modern human beings, you know, post-industrial modern human beings, but we still have a lot of, of these struggles. And so not only do we have, have to move past the idea of actual survival, do we have food, do we have shelter, right? But all of these other stressors and triggers that the body treats as if we're struggling for survival. And nowadays, it, you can also talk then about, you know, the quality of food we have, what the poisons that are in the food, the poisons that are in the environment. Like, it, it's even like more and more, you know, more and more layers of it. Yeah, and just to show how strong the mind is, I knew someone who was in such a state of combative survival that her nervous system would trigger off to defense over any small little thing 
because of the trauma that she had experienced to the point where she would put herself through an anxiety attack and didn't want to be by herself because she felt as if if she were, there would be no one next to her to call 911 when she's about to die. Yeah. That's how intense the body can trigger these senses of reality yeah. and yeah, make you think and trick you that yeah. you're going to die. Yeah, PS PTSD is a real, real thing. Mm -hmm. And it's more common than people would, believe, you know, understand. Like mm -hmm. everyday people, everyday people. I had a teacher when I was younger. He was a Muay Thai guy. And he was uh, captured and tortured, whatever, when he was in uh, Thailand. And eventually he came to the States. And we were at a barbecue. It was just a couple people. And uh, we had, there was like a, you know, we're sitting around a fire after eating. And you know, if you put green wood on a fire, it pops and crackles. And someone put a green log on the fire and it's popped and crackled and it triggered this guy. And he started chasing everybody around because he felt like he was being attacked when he was, he was captured and tortured by a local militia, basically. And so he freaked out and we started attacking oh. him. You know, like for him, it became real again, even though it wasn't. Yeah. So, How do you snap out of it? Uh, he basically, a couple of the guys just like kind of held him and calmed him down. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Emotional trauma. Maybe not from, obviously, there's a lot of physical trauma that happens in our, in our world too, but also just emotional trauma you don't realize necessarily. That it can create these patterns. Mm -hmm. so you think like, well, maybe I wasn't physically beaten, mm -hmm. you know, but that doesn't mean your experience is any less real. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to, again, how you think and how your patterns are reflect towards your life. You are your own creator of your destiny. If you have these patterns of thought that, oh, these people, they're trying to get me you're going to attract those kinds of relationships because you're going to recreate that scenario yeah so it's so important to be on top of your shit <laughs> <laughs> just to keep it real simple yeah but not to the point that you're stressing yourself out and pulling out your own hair <laughs> yeah yeah i mean balance yeah recovery recovery is something that we definitely don't understand anymore for sure i mean i can only speak for myself i was in recovery for a good eight years yeah and then the things that i, I had to do to get to a place of being okay then growth started happening sure but yeah. I think that's important for a lot of people to understand is that it takes time and it takes diligence and you won't always have to be in that place of cultivation because once the yeah. seed is there, it'll start to grow. Yeah. I think it's a very important, very important point that you mentioned that, that it, that it took you years. Yes. People just like we're in a instant gratification society. And so mm. years just does not compute, but it's very true. It's very true.
I mean, I had, you know, in New York, I would have people that would come, you know, like finance people, whatever, they'd come and work on their golfer's elbow or whatever, and then resolve it. But they would keep coming, like clockwork every week. And they're like, you know, the only time that I can just slow down and stop is when you pin me to the table. You know? Like, we just don't understand what recovery means. Recovery on a small scale or recovery on a large scale. We just don't do We just keep pushing forward. Yeah, you gotta heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if it's something, you know, you, you said kind of, actually, there's a really good book called The Power of Full Engagement. For this concept, it's like very, very good. One of my, there's a, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book. It's two authors, Tony Schwartz and Jim Lair. And Jim Lair was uh, an elite tennis coach. And even at the elite level, some players would consistently win. And, you know, it's like they have similar diets, similar training, you know, whatever. Like, what is it that's giving them the edge? Is it genes? And so for years, Jim Lair had this question in the back of his mind, and he kept, he was patient, and he would watch, and he would train people. And what he had noticed is that, uh, you know, like tennis is like a point game, right? You serve and volley until there's a point, and then you reset and whatever. And what he noticed is that most players would stay fully engaged in between points. Maybe they would pace back and forth the court, eyeing down their opponent, or like they would, maybe they lost the point and they would beat themselves up over it, something. But what the other people, players that were consistently winning would do, in between points, they would turn away from the court, disengage from the court, maybe play with the netting in their rack a little bit, but they, they stepped away even though it was a couple seconds at a time, their breathing would slow, their heart rate would slow. And those little moments of recovery are what he feels was giving them the consistent edge. Hmm. How would you relate that to life? Well, to me, I actually, it's, it's just cycles. Life, life is about rhythm and cycles. And there's times where we're active and there's times where we're inactive. And those rhythms happen at different scales. There's day and night, there's summer, there's winter. One's daily, you know, one's yearly. It's different scales. One's active, one's passive, right? Same thing with the people. You need daily rituals of renewal, you need weekly, you need yearly, vacations, whatever. Throughout your day, take a couple moments, sit and do some breath work, right? Or at the end of your day, you have at least one day a week where it's completely recovery for some people. You know, maybe people need three days a week. That's just recovery. You know, you can't really say prescribe for everybody, but at each kind of stage, you need, you need on, you need off, you need on. You need off. Even, you know, mindfulness and breathing is like very, very popular right now, which is great. Actually, I think that's great. 
but a lot of people are, are like meditation. People are coming to me and they're like, I can't do meditation. What is this meditation? I can never do it. Well, what, what you tell me what is meditation. And everybody's like, well, I can't sit and do nothing and think about nothing. It, I just can't do it. And I said, okay, well, that's a type of meditation, but there's other kinds of meditation. So maybe we have to find one that's more suitable. Maybe you have to recite mantras. Maybe we have to do guided visualization, you know, maybe whatever. Maybe we have to do more body work before you go into meditation. So it's all possible. And everyone ultimately can do it in some way. But we all have different temperaments. And so it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Also, I think it's important to know that there are levels to the mind as well which sure. is so cool within the Indian system is that the word mantra actually means mind technology. So they've developed a system to understand the mind and how it works and how each different level of brainwave activity is either conscious, unconscious, subconscious, etc. Mm. So how do we access these different levels? So it's not just you're on and then you're off sure, in the next sure. moment. It's a slow process yeah. of finding yeah. that state of slower brainwave activity. Yeah. yeah. Which is what I love about cranial sacral therapy because it can access delta brainwave state, which is the slowest and which is the state in which the body can heal itself. Yeah, the, the cranial sacral practitioners, the whole thing is the tidal rhythms of the body, the cycles of the body. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that, unlike the layers, without a doubt. The, uh, the thing is, is also it'll change for you, you know, like as you go through a practice, you will go deeper or something else will, will come up or whatever. Some people will stay in the body forever, and some people will skyrocket directly into the the bottom floor field of mind. Some people can do it. Most people can, you know, and everywhere in between. Even in the in the Bond tradition, there's kind of like three brackets of like practices, which is uh, sutra, tantra, and dogchen. And so, like each one, it's like kind of like how do we tailor make it to these people or this person? Like, you know? Yeah. Like someone me, who has an active mind, give them something to do with yeah. one aspect of their mind so it can start to dissipate. That kind of thing? Is that what you're talking about? Like a recipe? Yeah, some people need that. Yeah, like some people, like they need more of the elaborate ritual, right? Or the, maybe they're burning incense and they have you know, the deity statue or an altar, you know, like, uh, and they feed, you know, give the fruit as an offering. Like every season has its own holidays that they practice different rituals. And so maybe that's as far as they go. And maybe they're too busy just surviving to go any further. Some people, they need more body. So they do more like yogic practices, transformational practices physically. Some people are 
like for me personally, like I'm not interested in, in all of the, the color and the different like deities and these other things. I think it's interesting and I learn about them. But for my practice, to me, I can't stand it. When I'm practicing, I need to just directly go and do it and be there. So that's my personality, my temperament. Not, you know, the next person is going to be this way, the next person is going to be this way. You know, same thing with like prescribing herbs, for instance. You know, everybody's going to have their own, like, the snapshot of what they're like and what is the prescription going to be based off of, you know, who, what is presenting in front of you, you know. So you can do a similar thing with the breath work and meditative practices or whatever. And why do we do all these things, Josh? Why, <laughs> why do we strive to become whole? Because when we're whole, we're happy. And when we're happy, we make others around us happy. Right. Yeah, they, they call it the great bliss, right? <laughs> yes. Because once you have enough, you want to share. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's how you get more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you too. It's great. <laughs>